Good morning. My name is Joshua. Thank you for giving me the time to get my props in order. And uh, I'm an elder here at the church, and I have the privilege of preaching from time to time. Uh, each month, Ryan gives me or Jeff the opportunity one week to, to come and preach. And I know it was just three weeks since I was up here last, but uh, you won't see me again until April, I promise. Ryan and I switched our weeks, and uh, because we switched our weeks, uh, this sermon series will no longer be providing you with help, but instead we'll be discussing Heppel, and we'll be talking about the public aspects of the Hamilton East Public Library. As it turns out, the trip I was going to be taking this week is not happening, and the only bad thing about that is that I will not be making my annual trip to Parkside Church in Cleveland, where Alistair Begg preaches. And when I was there last year, I saw one of the most amazing pieces of preaching that I'd ever seen. They were working their way through Romans 13, or the whole book of Romans, and they got to Romans 13, and he was working his way through the passage, and right as he got to his final point, the third point in the message, he realized his time was up, and he stopped. And this is a world-class preacher. He's on the radio, Truth For Life. And he just, he stopped. And he said, you know what? I'm out of time. And for the sake of the folks in the kids' department, we're just going to pick up here next week. And it was extraordinary. I'd never seen anything like it. And I thought about learning a lesson from that. But I decided against it. And I promise you're going to hear every line of every page of this manuscript this morning. So before we get into that, let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to come before you, to hear your word, and to uh, see what you would have for us this morning as a church and as individuals. Thank you for the wonderful music that we've had this morning. Thank you for the great songs that we have sung that speak about your strength, your power, and how you have put that power to work on our behalf at the cross. Thank you. Uh, for what we have in Jesus, and thank you that it is through him that we can come to you and have understanding of what it is that you have for us. It is in his great name that we pray this morning. Amen. Okay, so our series on help is an acknowledgement that there is a gap between where we are and where we want to be, both as individuals and as a church. And we are hoping to provide some tools to help us bridge that gap. In January, our sermon series is on the vision and mission of the church, and we saw that we have received a God-sized vision, helping our community actively pursue their walk with Christ, and along with that, a God-sized mission. And if we're going to get that done, then we're going to need some God-sized assistance. We're not going to be able to effectively evangelize and have fellowship, pursue the path of discipleship, engage in meaningful ministry or gather together to worship him in spirit and truth if he doesn't assist us and make that possible. On our own, it's hopeless. We need his help to get this done. And that's an important place to start any discussion of people empowered. That's the uh, title that was assigned to me this morning, people empowered. The right place to start is the fact that on our own, we are not empowered. We are powerless. We cannot do anything without his assistance, and it's important to remember that, and we will come back to that quite a few times. Now, the first draft of this sermon opened with a, uh, a big section that talked about how God the Father uses power, God the Son has power, God the Holy Spirit uses power, and it was uh, good, and it was helpful, and it was very well organized, and there's a good outline, and it was all right and true. But uh, after Aaron read the first draft of that sermon to help me edit it, she uh, made me realize that um, 
while it was all good and true, it wasn't actually helpful. And that for being a sermon in a series on help, it wasn't what it needed to be. It's never unhelpful to talk about God's character and his work, but uh, it sort of had the emphasis in all the wrong places. So we scrapped that section. We lifted just a, a couple of key points and one key paragraph out of that. And so in 45 minutes, you can thank Aaron that it's five minutes shorter than it would have been. And you can give her a big bag of peanut M&Ms because those are her favorite. They're not. They're my favorite, but you could still do that. <laughs> Speaking biblically, when we talk about power, we're talking about ability, authority and strength. And the starting point is that all power is God's power. If you're taking notes from the sheet in the bulletin, we're going to have them on the screen. This is point number one. All power is God's power. Nobody, nothing, anywhere, ever has any power, ability, strength, or authority except that comes from God. All power exists, comes from, and sits underneath God's authority. As the sovereign Lord and creator of the universe, he is the ultimate source of all power. And that is not very difficult to substantiate from the scriptures. Psalm 62:11 says... Power belongs to God. And Psalm 113 says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. All power that exists is always received from and sits underneath God's power. And Romans 13 makes that uncomfortably personal. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So while he is almighty God, sovereign orchestrator of all things that happen, he still holds us responsible for how we use the authority that's been delegated to us and how we submit to and honor those that have authority over us. Now, I know that whenever any preacher starts to talk about God's sovereignty, his power, his authority, that there is an immediate emotional objection to that. If God's so strong, if God's so powerful, then why are we in such a mess? If he's so great, why isn't he doing something about the mess that we've made of the world? It's a wreck. Whether in Hamilton County or in Homs, Syria, God's authority is being disregarded and mocked. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous Suffer. Why is injustice allowed to stand? And uh, there's a short answer and there's a complete answer and they're, they're both good. The short answer is just you wait. He'll deal with it when it's time. And uh, a couple months ago, I wouldn't have uh, been able to believe this as, as fully, but uh, there's been some developments in our extended family that have helped me uh, get a better grip on this in a more personal way. There is a gentleman in our extended family and some of his actions and attitudes came to light and it was sort of a big deal in a uh, I want to hurt you, but slowly and agonizing kind of way, big deal. And I spent a lot of time and energy and enjoyed it quite a bit thinking, how can I do that? How can I make that happen? And eventually I realized probably through the intervention of the Holy Spirit that as good as the plans I were coming up with were, God could probably do a better job of it. And I didn't want to get between the hammer and the anvil. He can do that job better than I can. 
when Aaron read that in the manuscript, she made a note. It kind of sounds like you want God to punish him and torture him and not save him. Well, I'm a work in progress. That's, that's exactly the case. So he's still working on me. He's God. He gets to decide how and when and whether the hammer falls. So why does he wait? Why does it take so long sometimes? More complete answer is that he is accomplishing his purposes, even using sinful actions. We can see that in the story of Joseph, where he was sent to Egypt as a slave by his brothers and yet also sent to Egypt as a slave by God. Joseph was able to endure all those years of suffering because he knew, as he told the brothers later, you guys meant it against me for evil, but God meant it for good. It's very strange to think that the same way that the brothers intended evil, God had the same kind and degree of intentionality for good to save his people. And he extends that to all of his people in Romans 8, where Paul tells us, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's a key point to understand. All power is God's power, and God the Father exercises power for a purpose. During the vision series last month, we saw what his purpose is. He wants to be glorifying himself by revealing his character and his wisdom and his grace in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He had a plan. God had a plan. He came to us as a baby, Jesus of Nazareth, fully God and yet one of us. He lived a perfectly righteous life and eventually went to a cross and died for the sins of his people. And he was raised to life three days later, declared to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. What God planned, Jesus purchased with his blood. What God the Father promised, Jesus makes possible for us. All power is God's power, and Jesus exercises power on our behalf as our Savior. So, God had a plan, and a plan of salvation, a plan to reconcile sinners to himself in such a way that brings God as much glory as possible and brings the sinners into as much satisfaction and joy in God as possible. Uh, but that still leaves a bit of a gap. Jesus opened the way to God, but there's still a gap between a bunch of sinners that Jesus died for, but they don't know it, and a worshiping community, a church, a group of people that loves Jesus and serves him as Lord and Savior and is empowered to do so. And I think, hopefully, that this is where things should get even more helpful this morning. All power is God's power, and the Holy Spirit exercises power in the church. The Holy Spirit points us to the finished work of Jesus and empowers us for the ongoing work of Jesus. We'll see that the Holy Spirit works through what we call our five core commitments. Holy Spirit works through evangelism and fellowship, discipleship, ministry, and worship. Those are the things that the church does to accomplish this stuff. And we'll start with evangelism, because that's where it starts with each of us personally. This is not a prop. This is just help. None of us were born Christian, right? No matter what the faith of your parents, no matter how you were raised, out of the box, 
you are a sinner by nature. And there's nothing that we can do about that. But if you are here today as a repentant sinner who has come to God the Father through faith in Jesus, then something happened. Something changed in your life. And it started with you being evangelized. Somebody gave you the good news, whether it was uh, your parents or a classmate or some total stranger. God empowered you to hear the good news and empowered them to share it. You saw that lived out maybe in somebody's life. They gave you information and they showed what it looks like to live that out. And yet, what? As a sinner, you were unable, uninterested and unwilling to respond to the good news that you heard. We'll make this about me personally, so it'll be a little more palatable, that when I was born, I was dead in my sins. I was blind to the truth of Christ. I was um, alienated from God. I did not seek God. I was a slave to my own uh, sinful nature and sinful desires. I did not have the ability to do what is right. I was hostile toward God. And Paul says, these are all from the Bible. Don't get mad at me. You get mad at Paul. He says that no matter what I did, if it didn't flow from faith in Jesus, it was by definition sin. And that was the condition that I was born in. God had opened a way back through the death of Jesus, but I wasn't interested because I didn't care. I was a sinner. And maybe that's easy to believe about me, but it's you too. That might be hard to hear, but it's important to understand how powerless we start out so that we can properly understand the power of the Holy Spirit at work. Without him, we're going nowhere alienated from the gospel. Now, that might show up as a full-blown rebellion against God, or it could be a more subtle form of rejection that uh, leads to pursuing religion as a trying to uh, manipulate God to serve your purposes. But either way, it's not going to change unless the Holy Spirit does something. Colin Smith, pastor in Chicago, put it this way, that without, without Jesus, nobody could be saved. He opened the way to God. Without Jesus, nobody could be saved. But without the Holy Spirit, nobody would be saved. Jesus made it possible. The Holy Spirit makes it happen. It starts when he makes us aware of our sin in a new way. It makes us realize that we are sinners. He convicts us according to sin. And then he convicts us according to righteousness. That God has a standard and I'm a sinner and there's... A gap there. And for the first time, we realize that's a problem and that's not going to go well for us because he also convicts us according to judgment that sin has a price and somebody's going to pay. In John three, Jesus said that when the spirit begins to work and makes you realize these things, that it's like the wind blowing. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. You can't see it. But you can tell something's happening because it's breezy and stuff is happening, right? God is at work and you are responding. He's softening the hardness of your heart and disturbing the soil of your soul and preparing you to be able to receive the gospel. Through the words and actions of his servants sharing the gospel, he's making known to you the way of salvation. Ephesians 2 says he makes us alive. And even gives us the faith to respond. Titus 3 says that we are saved by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration, 
new life, life that was not there before. Romans 1 says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And because of the work the Holy Spirit is doing in evangelism, we do believe and we are saved. His work makes us able and willing to respond. Jonah put it best when he said, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. Illustrations are fun. Perhaps an illustration could uh, help uh, understand this in a different way. Six months ago, we were getting ready to move from our old house to our new house. And my lovely wife, delightful, informed me that she'd had enough of my complaining about my old office, the furniture, the decor, how it worked, and that I had the choice to either take my office stuff to the new house or I could take her. So I, uh, we started making plans. What is my new office going to look like? I had a new uh, system for hanging the stuff on the walls. I've got a new uh, reading chair. I've got it's time for a new work computer, so I've got that. Consolidated two desks into one with a new computer. There's a new desk chair, of course, and the centerpiece was a new desk that I was going to need. It ended up being a three-section wrap-around, 270-degree desk that was six and a half feet from back to front and over nine feet from side to side, and it is magnificent. I love this desk. But we made these plans. And then we had to figure out how we're going to do this, where are these pieces going to come from, because you don't just go to Staples and get a desk that's 54 square feet. And uh, so she spent hours online, on the phone, researching, doing work and found all the pieces where they were all going to come from. And we purchased it and it was ours. We planned it. We purchased it. It's ours. But that didn't get it into my office fully assembled. Right. There was more work that needed to be done just because it was ours and had arrived on the truck and was in the garage, didn't make it a functioning office. And it's the same way with the work of salvation. God planned it. Jesus purchased it. But the Holy Spirit makes it happen. He is the one who delivers and installs the work of salvation in your life. And just like uh, my office, the work uh, that God is doing in the church is a work in progress. It's not done yet, but you can tell that it's going to be something great someday. God planned it, Christ purchased it, and the Holy Spirit fulfills it and makes it happen in our lives. So, in the work of evangelism, there's a lot going on, and the Holy Spirit is the the behind-the-scenes guy making it all happen. He prepares our heart to receive the gospel So that when it comes, we can freely embrace it of our own accord. And on the other side, it was the Holy Spirit that was making it possible for the other guy to talk to you about the good news. Whether whoever that was, God was empowering them to share the gospel with you. The Holy Spirit not only empowers the receiving of evangelism, but also the one doing the sharing of it. So that's us now, right? We, we believe and now we share with others. Last week we did Evangelism 101. We learned different strategies, different um, tools, different ways that we can tell others about Jesus. Ryan gave us the Wizard of Oz illustration where you use your brain and you use your heart and you use your courage. And I think there was something about direction to direction, right? And uh, I was on a platform at the time with the band, so forgive me. Now, if evangelism was up to me, 
my ability to use my brain, my willingness to care, my ability to summon up my nerve and go in the right direction, then it would not happen because I just don't have it in me to do that. But it's not just up to me. There is the Holy Spirit that is working on both sides of the table. If it's up to my brain power to remember all the arguments and have the right answer and trap the agnostic and, you know, win the argument, I might win. But nothing would be accomplished. But fortunately, the Holy Spirit is involved, too. And he's bringing to mind all that Jesus has said, such as it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. And maybe I do find myself talking to some black belt atheist and I get my uh, clock cleaned and I just lose. But that's okay because I'm not just talking to that guy. I'm also talking to somebody that God wants to expose to his truth. And maybe he'll respond now or maybe later or maybe never. It's not my job to persuade and to save. My job is to be prepared to speak and then to speak and leave the delivery and installation up to the Holy Spirit. Same thing with the cowardly lion, that uh, if it were up to my courage by myself, I would be afraid to talk to people because I want people to like me. But I know in Christ I am secure in him. And what can man do to me? Well, man can do a lot to me, actually, but nothing of any permanent eternal damage. So that gives me the courage to speak, or at least it ought to give me the courage to speak. Consider uh, caring with my heart. It may surprise you to hear that by nature I'm not a terribly warm-hearted, outgoing, uh, ooey-gooey kind of person. And it's shocking, I know. And so when I hear the, the, the Spurgeon quote about, uh, have you no heart for the lost, maybe ye be not saved yourself, my natural first reaction probably maybe goes something along the lines of, get lost, Spurgeon. I don't need you saying that to me. But, you know, sometimes... Through reasons I can't understand, sometimes I do care about the lost and think that, you know, somebody should do something about that. And and sometimes I even am willing, want to speak or give to some missions organization when I feel that surprising, supernatural, not understandable impulse to do something about that. Well, I've learned that that's the Holy Spirit probably giving me direction and it would be a good idea to get on board with that. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. The Holy Spirit is at work in evangelism, both in receiving the word, but also in me and you being able and willing to share the word. And then the Holy Spirit does the work of conversion. Now, consider fellowship through the work of the Spirit. We are one in Christ. Because we have each been united to Christ in his death, we are also each united to each other through the church. The Bible uses many pictures to help us understand what the church is like. The church is like a flock. The church is like a building. The church is like a body. We're not just a bunch of people who live in the same neighborhoods, who have the same persuasions about morality and nothing better to do on a Sunday morning. No, by the Spirit's power, we have more in common and a deeper partnership than any other social affinity group. Fellowship isn't just um, hanging out and eating soup and subs, although that is great. And I was thrilled to see last week that there were like five different people that brought bags of cheese. And that was wonderful. It was heavenly, but it wasn't necessarily Christian fellowship. Christian fellowship is that partnership that we share in the work of Christ, as we help each other 
actively pursue our walk with Christ. Talk about the sports, fine. Talk about the weather, that's great. Talk about cheese, even better. But talk about what God is doing in your life and how you can be praying for the people around the table. That would be Christian fellowship. In Ephesians 4, Paul tells us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. And he says much the same thing in 1 Corinthians 12, which has a lot to say about the work of the Spirit. In one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Paul closed his second letter to the Corinthians by saying, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can first have fellowship with God and then second have fellowship with each other to a degree that goes far beyond any other ties or bonds that we can have. Likewise, the Holy Spirit exercises power through discipleship. Without the Spirit's power, we will not follow Christ for a lifetime. It is a long, hard road. And we can't do it without his power. We're not going to follow the way for a lifetime under our own power. The work of conquering sin in your life is not something that you can do simply through your own willpower. We're not going to grow in Christ through our own ability, strength, and effort. It takes the work of God to make us more like his son. The spirit doesn't just get us saved and then leave us at the start line to figure it out for ourselves. Paul told the Galatians uh, that, you know, since you began by the spirit, do you really think that you're going to be perfected, be finished, be completed under your own power? No. If we live by the spirit, let us also walk by the spirit and live a life in the spirit. This is a slow gradual, lifelong process. Sometimes it goes quickly. Sometimes it goes imperceptibly slowly. But over the course of months and years, there should be an unmistakable trajectory in our lives that we are being transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus. The way the Spirit does this uh, work of making us like Jesus is by making us see Jesus as he really is. And we all, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And as that happens, as we begin to sow and cultivate the things of God in our life, eventually we will see fruit, see the fruit of the Spirit and growth in Christ. The Holy Spirit is at work, not just at the start of the Christian life, but also at every step along the way. Much of that growth comes from the work and labor and serving that we do with God in his work, which we call ministry. Our all-powerful God is at work accomplishing his purposes, and we get to participate with him in his work. The sermon isn't all about God doing all the work and us being passive participants in that. No, we get to participate with God in his work. He gets the work done. And we get to help. And sometimes that means hard work on our part. Doing God's work is not something we can accomplish through our own natural gifts and abilities. The Spirit equips us for ministry and even endows us with uh, special giftings that make it plain that it is the Spirit that it's at work, not just some talented individual. Um, sometimes that shows up as spectacular signs, and sometimes it's 
so invisible that you don't notice until you see a body of work over a lifetime and say, my goodness, God must have been at work in this person's life. The closing benediction in Hebrews tells us that God will equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Paul spoke about this partnership kind of work when he wrote to the Colossians, talking about preaching the gospel. He said, for this, I toil, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I toil with his energy working in me. Toiling under your own strength, that's hard work with little chance of success. Struggle with all his energy and stuff begins to happen, although it's still hard work. Ephesians 4 tells us that church leadership exists for this reason, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. While the church leaders uh, equip and organize and administer the church, it is the Holy Spirit who empowers the ministry directly. First Corinthians, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. That's why spiritual gifts exist, for the building up of the church, the common good. God's spirit is at work, empowering us to build up the church for the common good. Lastly, when you put them all together, the Holy Spirit is at work as he leads us into Worship. This is individual worship and worship as a group. This is when we gather as a church to worship on Sundays and also as we worship him through the way we do our daily activities. And this is the goal of all of the other four areas, like I talked about three weeks ago, that we evangelize, we have fellowship, we do discipleship, we do the work of ministry so that we can be a worshiping community. What does John 4 tell us? Is God seeking evangelists? Is God looking for people to have fellowship with? Does God want a bunch of disciples? Is God looking for people to help him in the work of ministry? All those are true, but what he says is the Father is seeking worshipers. Worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. The Holy Spirit works in all of the other four areas to fuel and create and ignite worship in God's people. We can see in Revelation 1, John is in exile on an island by himself, solitary confinement. And even though he's by himself, he still makes the time to be in spirit on the Lord's day. The spirit empowers us to worship. Okay, that's how the Holy Spirit works in the church. And I want our last section to be uh, even more practical, useful, and helpful. Our final topic this morning is this. The work of the Spirit will not be accomplished in your life without prayer. The notes say cannot, but I change that to will not be accomplished without prayer because I'm going to contradict myself right away. We've already established God does whatever he wants. God has all power, and if he wants to do something, he's going to do it whether we pray for it or not. If he wants to save somebody, he's going to save them whether I drop the ball with evangelism or not. That's just my loss for not getting to participate. God's purposes cannot be thwarted. Like we sang earlier, he will not be denied. But he wants to accomplish his work 
with our participation because he gets more glory that way. And he's chosen prayer as one of the means that he uses to do this work. His greater purpose is glorifying himself. And he can get a lot of mileage out of prompting us to pray and then delivering on those prayers. It brings him more glory and it brings us more joy and satisfaction in him. We are grateful for the chance to participate. Now, that might sound like uh, manipulation, right? That if one of us did that to somebody else, it would be pretty shady. But God is not like us. His motives are pure. We manipulate other people for selfish reasons to their detriment. But God works through prayer for our good so that we will learn to trust him more, so that we will come to view him as a father, so that we can participate with him in the work of his church. It is better for us to pray and then see him work than it would be for us to see him work without ever having had a chance to pray about it. It's better for him and it's better for us. So while he is capable of working independently of us, he chooses to do his work through prayer. His usual pattern is for us to participate. Another illustration. When Brianna was in kindergarten last year, they had nap time in the afternoon, and that was a wonderful idea. I don't know why they got rid of that in first grade. Uh, and all of her, everybody was allowed to bring in some small personal comfort item from home that would stay in their cubby all day, and then when nap time came, would come out and they would sleep with the, the kiddos. And um, as the course of the year went on, more and more kids had pillow pets, and Brianna didn't. And so she started to drop hints. Danielle got a new pillow pet. It's a cat. All the other kids have pillow pets and they get to sleep with them at nap time and they're soft. I want a pillow pet. And so this went on for 18 months. So how happy was she on Christmas morning to see a pillow pet? Right. She was pretty excited. Now, she would have been quite pleased if rainbow colorful sparkle walker had been our idea but she was that much more excited because she asked for 18 months and then there it was she was so pleased and she still thanks us and it's the same thing with god he knows the power that we need before we do he could give us what we need before we ask but he gets more glory from us more awareness in us of our need for him and he gets more work done in us for having us pray first. Jesus flat out commands us to pray boldly and confidently, but it's noteworthy and not that surprising that the same section where he makes his strongest statements about prayer, John 14 through 16 is the same section where he talks about the coming Holy Spirit. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, that your joy may be full. Now, this might sound a little problematic, viewed from the perspective of, I want a pony and a million dollars and maybe an Audi A7. That would be really nice. But, you know, that probably isn't going to happen, no matter how boldly or persistently or impudently you pray. That's just not 
the purposes that God is trying to achieve in this world. But viewed from the perspective of God is at work glorifying his name in the church and we get to freely and joyfully participate, it would make a lot of sense for Jesus to say, whatever you ask, whatever brings glory to my name, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. That makes a lot of sense. So we try to align our prayers with what we already know of God's desires. And he's told us a lot about what he wants. We can pray confidently and boldly that people will hear the gospel and respond and grow in the grace of Christ. But we don't always know all the details. So we also pray humbly because we don't know exactly how God is going to work things out. Will God provide physical healing or will he provide patience and sustenance? Will God provide a way out and deliver out of temptation or will he provide strength to endure under it? Will God cover the bills through providing a job or will there be money for no reason in the mailbox or some other way? We don't know. We can we, we, we know that God works through hardship and suffering and he gets a lot of work done then. But if it was up to us, we'd really rather be healthy and comfortable and have God do his work. So we pray, God, your will be done. I'd really like it if your will looked like A, B, C and D. You get a lot of praise from that. But thy will be done. It's up to you. So pray boldly as to a father because he is our father. But pray humbly as to a God whose ways are higher than our ways. Since we are to pray to God as a father, then we can look to our own kids as examples of how this works. So uh, Brianna, again, of course, she's the one I've got to work with, uh, will ask us for stuff. And we, uh, our answer almost always is whatever we think is going to be best for her. So, Daddy, can I have some milk? Of course, of course you can have some milk, sweetheart. That is a great idea. Daddy, can you untangle my necklaces? Well, in the morning. It's bedtime, not now. Daddy, can you preach in your pink shirt? Sure, why not? Sounds like a great idea. Daddy, can you help me with my homework? Well, some, a little, but you're going to need to learn the material and do the work yourself. Daddy, can I play outside? Well, kiddo, it's raining, so I'm going to say no. How about now? Can I go outside now? All right, punk, go outside, play in the rain, see what happens, and learn the hard way. Does God not do that with us? Sometimes give us what we ask for and have us learn the hard way because there's no other way that we're going to learn. That happens. Yeah. Daddy, can I have a baby sister? No. No, you cannot have a baby sister. Fortunately, in our own prayers, we can also look to scriptures as an example of how to pray. We can use scriptures as our guide, as a pattern for prayer. And uh, in scripture, we have examples of prayers that follow each of those five areas uh, that we talked about before, the core commitments. For evangelism, consider Ephesians 6, 18 and 19. Pray at all times in the spirit, making supplication for me. That words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Pray for boldness in speaking. For fellowship, we can look to Jesus praying to the Father on our behalf in John 17. I ask for those who will believe in me that they may all be one, even as we are one. Pray for that unity of fellowship. In regards to discipleship, look at Colossians 1. 
We have not ceased to pray for you. Paul, speaking to the Colossians, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Pray that you may walk worthy of him with endurance and with patience and with joy. For ministry, consider the example of Paul on his church planting journeys in the book of Acts. They returned, strengthening the souls of the disciples. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord. They put servants in the church and put them to work and prayed for that work. Before I read the verse in Philippians about worship that brings it all together, I found one other one that I, I couldn't resist dropping in from Third John, which is a personal letter from John to a guy that we don't know who he was. Uh, and it's well off the beaten path of the New Testament. And it says this, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Man, as well as you are doing spiritually, I just want you to be healthy and doing well. Those kind of prayers are great, too. And lastly, I want us to close with a prayer of Paul on the behalf of the Philippians. And I want that to lead us into our time of prayer here, which uh, we will close our sermon with. This one is about worship, the culmination and the purpose of all the other ones. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that we've been able to consider this morning your power and what you are doing with your power. I thank you that you have illuminated our minds, that your spirit has been at work in our past, and I pray also this morning in our time together to help us see what you're saying and understand it, and to see that you are true and beautiful in what you speak and in what you do. Thank you that you have enabled our response and give us the desire to respond to your word and your word this morning. Lord, I thank you that you are working according to a plan. I thank you that you know what's going on and that nothing is coming as a surprise to you. I thank you that you are exercising your power through a plan and that even when we do not understand what is happening and we do not see that you can be trusted to be putting your plan into practice and thank you that it is a good plan that is for our good and is for your glory. Thank you that we can have access to you through the work of Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can have authority to come into your presence through the work that he did on the cross on our behalf. Thank you that, that uh, we can have fellowship with you through your son, Jesus. And thank you that you put your spirit to work in our lives so that we can be aware of the needs that we see in the church and in the world and that you give us the desire and the capacity to, to do something about that. Thank you that we can see a need and meet a need, at least as far as prayer is concerned. 
thank you for our study that many of the small groups have been going through in the treasure principle, that we can see how you are working in our lives to free us from the power of money and liberate us by the grace of giving to live a life that is pleasing to you and liberated. I thank you that you hear our prayers and respond in a way that is best for us in the time that you see fit and in the manner that you see fit, but always in a way that is designed and intended to heighten and further our joy and satisfaction in you, Lord. And I thank you that this power of prayer isn't a power that we have to summon up. It's not something that we can, we can do by repetition or diligence or knuckling down. Thank you that the power of prayer is your power at work in us, prompted by you, made possible by you, and fulfilled by you for your purposes. And thank you, Lord. Thank you that we can look forward to the day when you come again and your work will be finished. And we will behold your coming when you come in power. Lord, sustain us until that day and enable us to do your work. It is in your great name that we pray. Amen.